0: we like to say that context matters isn't that right
1: tim oh absolutely i mean it's my shibboleth it's my catchphrase it's my shield (laughs) it governs so much of our decision making our feelings and of course our behavior so yeah i'd say context matters so what did you think when our guest said this human self As you said, is a multifaceted
2: thing. We have all these aspects of ourselves, but not all those pieces of our identities are necessarily salient to us or at the forefront of our mind in any given moment. At any particular point in time, we're probably navigating the world through the lens of a particular identity.
1: It really puts a finer point on the idea of context. What struck me is the part of context is our self-identity. like That our behavior is going to be influenced by the particular self-identity that we have at any particular time. So I agree, and and you know this, Tim, but I'm not sure if our listeners know it, but I've been
0: fascinated for a very long time about self-identities and self-schema, you know, those micro-identities that pile together to make up the key pillars of our identities. And I really like this statement and this idea that at any given time, that context is interacting with one of our identities making that identity more salient drawing it out it is not just some generalized version of me or you it is a very particular me or you as influenced by the context that we
1: find ourselves in Yeah, it's it's pretty great isn't it let's orient our listeners to why we found this interesting and and who we're talking about you're right which means it is time to
0: welcome listeners to behavioral grooves the podcast that explores story, science, and secrets
1: from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. And I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well being and your relationships and your organization by helping you find your groove. From best selling authors to researchers, we share insights from the sharpest minds in psychology, behavioral economics, and neuroscience. In this episode, we share a
0: conversation we had with Dominic Packer, a professor at psychology at Lehigh University and the associate dean for research and graduate programs in arts and science. His work has appeared in Scientific American Mind, The Washington Post and Harvard Business Review,
1: and he joined us in this episode to talk about his new book, The Power of Us. The Power of Us is co-authored with Dominic's friend and co-researcher, Jay Van Bavel who is an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University. This is their first book together, and we got some great insights from Dominic about the issues they looked at. We got a glimpse into their revolutionary new understanding of identity and how our groups have powerful influence on our feelings, beliefs, and behaviors.
0: We also learned how these shared identities can inspire personal change and social movements. It's a great conversation, and we hope that right now you sit back with a fresh glass of social identity and enjoy our conversation with Dominic Packer.
1: Dominic Packer, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks for having me. We're very, very glad to have you here and we're gonna get started with a speed round because I'm sure that this of all episodes, this is going to be the speediest speed round ever. So super easy questions. Good attempt, Tim. Good attempt. (laughs) Super easy questions. Okay. So first question, dark chocolate or milk chocolate? Dark chocolate. Yeah. A little different than your co-author though, right? That's right. Yeah. We (laughs) don't agree. Uh, Perfect. uh, By the way, I'm in, uh, I'm in your camp on that one. Uh,
0: Just FYI. I would have to agree. I'm a, I'm a dark chocolate guy myself. All right. Would you rather share office space with a hockey player or a swimmer? (laughs)
2: <laughs> That's a great question. I certainly originally would have preferred a swimmer, but having shared an office with my co author, Jay, who was a hockey player. Uh I think he won me over in the end, not because of the hockey, but uh, he turned oh. out to be a pretty good guy.
0: <laughs> well, he became a good guy, but I mean, uh, you you tell the story of maybe a little some hockey equipment that is sitting in your office, That's and not, right. not necessarily the best thing for No, It wasn't the best way to to make start our friendship. He showed
2: up in the <laughs> office with this massive bag of goalie equipment, which is huge, and it wasn't a, that big of an office to begin with, and also quite stinky. <laughs> But he had nowhere to store it. He'd moved into this tiny apartment in Toronto. And I think his wife didn't want it there. So it ended up in our <laughs> oh, office. Yeah.
1: For good reason. For very good reason. And it was a,
2: an awkward start to our relationship. But, you know, we got past it. And eventually he got a bigger apartment and took it away. So that was that was
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Save you, that relationship. There you go. Okay. You guys have a lot of interesting starts to the relationship. Mm. That that could be like a whole podcast in and of itself. Yeah, but true. we got we're, we're zipping through the speed round here. So, uh, third question, do liberals and conservatives have the same brain anatomy?
2: (laughs) So, studies show some differences, both in brain patterns of activity and potentially in some brain structures. But with the brain and something like a political attitude, it's very much a chicken and egg question. Uh, So, is it that there's some potentially neurological differences that can cause people to hold different sort of political orientations? Or is it that the sorts of experiences people have with different political orientations and the way they live lives change their brains? Because everything we do it is
0: changing our brain all the time. Fantastic. And actually, that was a really interesting part of the book Loved it. as you were getting into this and the amygdala and all those factors mm. that are going in there. And at some point, we might go and sure. cover some of that. So, yeah. so as, as we're going here, last speed round question. So if I was a smoker, and I lived alone and was a lonely person, didn't have any friends or anything else like this. Would it be better for my health if I gave up smoking my pack a day uh, you know, habit or if I just went out and joined a group of, of people?
2: So the sociologist Robert Putnam, who famously wrote a book called Bowling Alone, he made a claim in that book that it would be equivalent. That if you smoke a pack of cigarettes a day, and you don't belong to any meaningful kind of social groups, and you don't have social connections, it's a toss up, Yeah, you know, it'd be good to quit smoking, but it would also be good to join a group or two. And so he's trying to make the point that it's not just that social connections are something we enjoy psychologically or nice to have friends, that it actually has real consequences for for your physical health as well, as potentially as dire as, as smoking heavily.
0: Yeah which again i think some of this underlies the the overall kind of theme of your book which is the social identity is a key component of the way we think and act and behave so can you for for the listeners who haven't already read your fantastic book can you tell us a little bit about just how would you describe it to somebody who's never heard it and what would be that key key piece for you to say hey this is what the book is about
2: yeah um so we study social identities, which are the parts of ourselves that are linked to or come out of the groups that people belong to. So if you ask someone, who are you? you know, the self turns out to be a pretty multifaceted thing. Some parts of yourself are very individual in nature, a trait you value having or a skill set uh, They differentiate you from other people. Some parts of ourselves are relational in nature. So being a father or a son or an uncle or um, even something like a, a professor you know, in, in relation to a student, those are all relational identities and you're getting increasingly social. But then a lot of our identities, for at least many people at least, are uh, what we're calling social or collective identities that they're grounded in groups. And this could be your citizenship, it could be your race or ethnicity, it could be your gender, it could be your professional identity, being a, a psychologist in my case, it could be a fan of a sports team. Uh, but these group-based identities are really important to us, and they end up shaping a lot of the things we believe, uh, the preferences we hold, the goals we possess. And we argue in the book that this makes a great deal of sense because life is a complicated thing. It's hard to know what's appropriate, what we should do, what we should think, what our opinions about things should be. And so we inevitably look to others to help figure those things out. And the others we inevitably look to are those of the groups we value. those people in the groups we value. And so in that way, our social identities end up shaping a lot of how we navigate the world, a lot of our feelings about the world and how we relate to each other. Uh, We treat people within our groups differently than the people outside of our groups, for example.
1: Yeah, I I guess I'm curious about your thoughts about the Wall Street Journal reported today that that Hispanics are equally likely to be Democrats or Republicans. Mm -hmm. And uh, whereas there has been maybe a myth or or at least a perception that as a as a community, well, that would be a sort of a singular and unifying identity to be Hispanic, to be Latinx. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does that surprise you that there's there's more complexity?
2: No, it doesn't surprise me that there's more complexity. I think we shouldn't necessarily expect that a given social identity would be perfectly aligned with another social identity. One thing that happens in polarized societies, so, and I think we probably all agree we're living in a particularly polarized time in the United States, but in many countries around the world. One thing that's happening with polarization is identities are, are getting collapsed. Into a single dimension. So if you think about the multiplicity of of your own social identities, right? You have a citizenship, you have a race, you have a gender. And for different people, those some people, those are very important. For other people, you're part of the group, but it's not that important to you. It's not central to who you are. You also have potentially religious affiliation and sort of beliefs. You have a professional identity. And in a complex society, those are those are all cross-cutting. They're not. They're not aligned. Just because you hold a political or- orientation or affiliation doesn't inherently mean you'll have this kind of profession or belong to this racial group. That said, there often are some correlations. So, mm. generally speaking, members of some groups uh, might tend in a particular society to affiliate more with one side of the political spectrum than the other. Um, but it's not inevitable. And I think it's actually a healthy thing overall for societies. <laughs> that yeah. don't collapse all of identities down into one thing so that the only thing that really matters is your politics. I think that's actually very unhealthy for society. And I think it's very unhealthy for us as individuals to live like that.
1: But it's happening more, right? It is. on the increase. It is happening.
2: It is definitely happening such that increasingly everything seems to be about politics, right? You can't have a conversation about any issue without it necessarily starting to feel political. And that's the sign of polarization. And, it, and it's a it's a loss it, in some ways it makes life kind of boring right that you that <laughs> everything's predetermined by this political identity.
0: And I want to come back to that, but I I want to touch on something that you said, is that, you know, you have all these different groups that you are, uh, Mm -hmm. belong to, right? And there there are various uh, intensities. And a lot of the work that you've shown in the book, and and I think in the research that you've done, is priming certain identities Mm -hmm. over others. And so I wanted to get your thought on this from that perspective. As you said, we're all parts of multitude of groups um, but how does that identity get um, activated and does how does that play into the way that we think and the behaviors that we have, as you've talked about in, in here?
2: Right. So this is a key point in the book we're, that we're trying to make and that uh, we believe to be the case based on a lot of the research we've done, but also a lot of work by other people, which is that the human self, as you said, is a multifaceted thing. We have all these aspects of ourselves, but not all those pieces of our identities are necessarily salient to us mm-hmm. or at the forefront of our mind in any given moment. At any particular point in time, we're probably navigating the world through the lens of a particular identity. And if you think about the way your life goes in just the course of a single day, right, you might, sort of for me, I wake up in the morning and my primary identity is a dad. I got to get the yeah. kids out of bed and give them breakfast and get them on the school bus, right? And then I shift into work mode, right? I go and check my email and I'm dealing with work related things as a professor or a psychologist. I might then, at some point, tune into the news, and it'll be a political self, potentially, given a lot of the news we, we confront these days that's at the forefront of my mind. And then maybe at the end of the day, you know, I spend time with my wife, so it's a relational identity, or I, you know, I go to an event, I go to a, a hockey game, in which case it would be <laughs> my fan-based identity. So even in the course of a single day, different parts of myself are coming in out of focus, and what a lot of our research and others have shown is that if you make an identity salient to somebody. So you remind them temporarily that you are this kind of a person or that kind of a person. It actually does in those moments change how they think, even how they perceive the world. And this is work that my co-author Jay has done, really cool stuff over the years on how it can change really basic perceptions of taste and smell, for example. So they did these studies in Ottawa, in Canada, where they reminded... Canadians that they were Canadian or not. So the two conditions, half the people have been reminded they're Canadian, the other have been asked to think about themselves as individuals. And then they did a taste test. uh, And the taste test was of honey and maple syrup. And it turned out the people who'd been reminded of their Canadian-ness preferred the maple syrup, whereas the people (laughs) who hadn't been reminded of their Canadian-ness didn't. They liked the honey just as much. And and so that momentary sense, oh yeah, I'm Canadian, actually changed their experience of this inherently uh, Canadian Uh, food food item. uh, It's deeply linked to the Canadian sense of self.
1: Have you lost your Canadian self from time to time and somehow gotten (laughs) away from your love of maple syrup? Or is it always salient for you?
2: (laughs) It's not always salient for me. Uh, Although I do like maple syrup. But that I think brings up another sort of piece of the puzzle, which is that identities can come in and out of focus for us, but they can also become chronically salient. That is, If it's a really important identity to you, it might be something you do think about a lot, and you don't have to be reminded you're Canadian if if that's the case for you. But another Canadian might need to be reminded, oh yeah, I am Canadian, and then it would change how they they think or feel.
0: So we talked about the polarization earlier, and I was wondering um, just your thoughts on this idea, because I think part of that, I'm not sure, this is my question to you, so I'm not making an assumption here, is with social media, with the advent of 24-hour news, that are politically based, is part of this polarization a result of the fact that these are being thrown in our face much more often than they were? Mm-hmm. So they're becoming more salient to you because you're mm-hmm. looking and you go out on Twitter and all of a sudden it's a political perspective. And now that is that's salient. It's primed for you. You look turn on the news in the middle of the day, which in before it used to be soap operas or whatever else was on right. there. And now you can turn to, you know, Fox or CNN or whichever MSNBC, and you are, again, reinforced on that. Just your thoughts. Is that part of this polarization that's happening, or is that a result of that? I mean, is, you know, chicken or egg you talked about earlier? Yeah, I mean, it's almost certainly a bit of
2: both, but I think you're right. I think that just the constant bombardment of this kind of information uh, whether it's on cable news or on Twitter or on Facebook, it's continually reminding us that we're living in a political world and that we are aligned with some people and not with others. And so I think that's one part of it, For especially for ordinary citizens, this sort of just bombardment is continually activating this identity. It's also, I think it's fair to say that the ecosystem, the media ecosystem and the social media ecosystem have changed incentives for political animals, politicians and pundits to increasingly be sort of extreme in their, their viewpoints to get attention, right? If you think about the the, the incentive structure of social media, it's, it's attention driven. You want those clicks, you want those retweets and those shares. And uh, we know that the sorts of things that get attention are provocative, use more um, what's called moral emotional language, language designed to get people riled up. Uh, they tend to be more aggressive against outgroups. All of this gets attention. And so if you're a would-be politician who's trying to get some votes in the end of the day, and you need attention to do that, then you now have incentives to use this sort of heightened, aggressive, divisive rhetoric, which then to ordinary citizens is just, again, continually reminding them <laughs> about this political dynamic. So I, I do think it's a recursive thing, and and we're sort of stuck in a in a bad spiral at the moment.
1: You know, I was curious, reading the book about who you were focused on when when you and Jay were putting the book together. And I, w- I can imagine being a co-author, being co-authors is both really rich and wonderful and challenging sort of at the yeah. same time. Yeah. But did you have someone or some group or some identity that you were writing to?
2: That's a really good question. And I think something, because we'd never written a book before, so most of our writing is, is for fellow academics, right? We write yeah. papers, and they go to peer-reviewed journals, and they're filled with jargon and statistics, and, <laughs> and and this was our attempt to not do that. We wanted a broader audience than that. And I think the kind of people we had in mind were smart, really interested, curious citizens who just want to know more about whether it's politics or leadership or group dynamics generally and about the self. And, and so we tried to write a book that would be appealing to people who are interested in those issues and, and the science of it, but not academics necessarily. At the same time, always in the back of your mind as an academic is you don't want to write something that your colleagues don't respect. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So that always is there, this little voice in your head, that part of your identity saying, you know, you better get this right. You can't dumb it down. You can't be superficial. So we tried to strike a balance and hopefully we did between telling stories and, and finding anecdotes to, to sort of exemplify ideas, but also always grounding it back in the in the research findings.
0: Yeah. And I think you did, actually, you did a fantastic yeah. job on that. So I, I applaud. Thank um, you. We, we get to read a lot of books and a lot of different ones, and, and that isn't <laughs> yeah. always the case, right? It either gets dumbed down too much or not. And one of the things that you start the book, and I think this, I think, is a really interesting piece, and I'd love for you to share a little bit more about this with our, hmm. with our listeners. You kind of talk a little bit about minimal group studies, this yeah. whole concept of which led to a lot of this work in in different pieces. But one of the things is that, well, can you just tell us why, you know, minimal group studies were important and what they led to? Because I think that is a Mm -hmm. a, a good intro into the whole thing.
2: Sure. So the minimal group studies were originally run in the UK uh, and the lead researcher at the time was a guy called Henri Tajfel. And what the researchers were trying to do is create an intergroup situation where people in a group But they've stripped out all of the reasons why psychologists and social scientists would think you'd get prejudice and discrimination and bias. And this was a very scientific kind of enterprise, right? They want to create what we call in the book a social vacuum. So, just Mm -hmm. like a chemist might create a vacuum to study a particle, they want to create a vacuum where they've stripped out all the social context and then they could add in elements back in to see what effects it would have on producing prejudice or discrimination, right? So, you, you put people in a group but there's nothing attached to it. And then you add in a stereotype or you add in conflict over resources and you see what affects that. So the way they did it was really, they assigned people randomly and the participants in some cases knew it was truly random to an arbitrary, meaningless group they'd never heard of before. So in some of the studies, it was, they did, they did a brief art preference task. They showed them abstract art and I said, which paintings do you like? And then they said, ah, well, it turns out you're a Kandinsky fan. So you're part of the Kandinsky group or you're a Klee fan. You're a part of the Klee group. Minimal groups we've used have often been uh, you're a, you're a lion or a tiger, yeah, and you're part of a group. You know you're part of a group, but you never meet anyone else on the group in the t- in the group. There's no personal incentives attached to it, so you don't benefit in any way by being part of this group or not being part of the group. There's no conflict between the groups in the sense that often the tasks you get you you do are about dividing up or allocating resources to the groups, but you don't have to do it in a zero-sum way. You can benefit groups, both groups equally if you want. So they thought they created this vacuum where people are in a group, but they have no reason to be to be biased, to prefer their group over the other. But that's not what happens. What happens is as soon as someone's in a group, they're oh, I'm a Kandinsky fan, or I'm a tiger. <laughs> they immediately feel this positivity toward it. They like their group suddenly, like, oh, I love Kandinsky and I love Kandinsky <laughs> fans. And and it's not just an attitudinal change and sort of a positive emotional response, but they also will often discriminate. So when given the chance to divide up resources, they'll give more to their own group than to another group. And this was a surprising finding, and we think it's one of the most important psychological findings of the last 50 years, um, because it illustrates, I think to us, this readiness people have to identify with collectives. It's like, we we sometimes call it a readiness for solidarity, and the most minimal of conditions can produce it. It doesn't mean it'll be sustained for the long-term, I think other things would have to come into play for this to become a a lifelong group membership. But we have this readiness and and a propensity to just feel like, oh, these are my people, I can trust them more. And it sets the ground for cooperation. Mm. And I think, to get back to your original question, why were these studies so important? One of the reasons they're important is they just sort of demonstrate this really powerful propensity, which happens within seconds, that a lot of people at least exhibit.
0: And with that, it strikes me because the, the, this propensity, as you said, to to form this identity or, you know, like, oh, I am a Kandinsky, you know, fan right. and I like others, but it has implications well beyond just the, in the lab. I mean, this is, this takes place on the playground with kids. This mm-hmm. takes place in work settings, you know, business unit A, business unit B. And so what has some of the, your thoughts on why are we so easily, wanting to join a group? Is is there an evolutionary component to this? I mean, what are your thoughts mm-hmm. on on why that happens?
2: Yeah, we tend to think there, there must be an evolutionary, must have been an evolutionary benefit to this kind of psychological readiness. So we argue that humans have a sort of innate groupishness, <laughs> which is not the same thing as saying we are inherently in, or innately racist or sexist. Those are particular ways of grouping the world, but We see it as, in some ways, actually much deeper than that, in that it's a a readiness to group, but the ways in which we group ourselves and categorize the social world are endlessly variable, and different societies at different points in time could do it in very different ways. And the criteria can, in many cases, be largely arbitrary. You could do it based on eye color if you wanted to, and in fact, in some experiments, people have done it based on eye color, and and people will identify with that. So we seem to have this built-in readiness to identify it seems to be flexible in that we do it spontaneously to, when new categories come along. And I think that suggests that in an evolutionary ancestral environment, it was it was a good thing to be able to flexibly form affiliations and, and associations with others to exploit cooperative opportunities, to be able to work together. You know, humans are a very vulnerable species. We don't have scales, we're not poisonous, we're kind of delicious, right? Um, the way we survived, <laughs> Was by working together, we we were able to cooperate with other people for protection, and then to, you know, expand and and gain resources and and build ultimately the sort of massive societies we now live in, and it's all through being able to cooperate with others. And so we think this group-based identity, the capacity to form these identities, is a big part of that puzzle. And what differentiates the human species in many ways from from other species.
1: It is fascinating. Uh, and uh, sort of on the other side of this is a lot of your your work, both uh, with other co-authors and individually, has been in dissent, especially within groups. And uh, so what what have you found most interesting from that work?
2: Right now, discussion, for example, of uh, this sort of idea of of tribalism, Mm -hmm. that humans are inherently tribal. And it's easy to look out, especially, again, back at the political landscape, and see a sort of tribal-like dynamic, whatever that means. But what I think people mean by it is, the sense that when we group, we inevitably enter into sharp conflict with other groups. It, those relations can become toxic. And also within our groups, we can become very insular, and we clamp down on dissent and we all have to think the same thing. We uh, cancel people who don't agree with us, right? This is a tribal-like dynamic, although that's really not the best use of the word, but it's, I think that's what people mean when they say it. But from our perspective, groups can be like that but they're not inevitably like that. Mm. And that what shapes how groups actually behave are the norms within the group. And some groups can have very open norms, right? Here in this group, you can say anything. You, we want to hear novel ideas and we don't attack dissenters. Or in this group, we really value out groups where we might be actually pro-social toward other groups. We were, you can think about charitable organizations as being like that. And so one of the things I've always been interested in my research is, what do individual group members do, and how much do they feel they can voice their opinions, especially if their opinions diverge from those of others? Because it's usually a healthy thing for a group to have a divergence of voices, right? If you think about groups like a company trying to make good choices uh, in its strategy in, in marketplace, right? You don't ultimately want a company where no one can articulate a criticism of of their boss or or an alternate idea, because Ultimately that company will go under, right? Because competitors (laughs) will come along with better ideas. But how do you get people to articulate that? One of the things we found is that sort of ironically or paradoxically maybe is that the people who are ordinarily the most conformist to group norms are also often the people who are most likely to dissent under the right conditions. And the key factor is identity. How much do you care and identify about this group? Mm. The more you tend to care about the group, the more you'll tend to go along with the group on sort of normative opinions or ideas or behaviors because you, you agree with them. Like this is, you think it's right, you think this is sensible. But if you come to disagree, right? if you come to see it differently for one reason or another, you might be also the same, same person likely to articulate your disagreement because you again, care. You want your group to do well. And if you come to see what we're doing is unproductive or harmful to us, then you want to change what the group is doing and it's only if you care enough that you would do that because to do that is to risk social ostracism or mockery or losing status within the group or having your boss dislike you or whatever it might be so it it's kind of a funny thing that this deep sense of identity with a group can both produce conformist behavior that often does but also produce dissenting behavior and under the right conditions of uh,
0: of course That was one of the fascinating things that the book pointed out for me. Again, as you said, it's almost paradoxical in in the Mm -hmm. in the nature of that, because you would assume it would be that that person on the edge of the group that would be more likely to dissent as opposed to the person who has internalized that more. One of the other factors that I found really fascinating about the book was this idea that, you know, again, you talked about this tribalism aspect and this uh, the idea of in-group versus out-group. And what uh, i think it was in the beginning of the book you were talking about you know just being in an in group doesn't mean that you hate the out group but you mm-hmm. just prefer the in group better but there are some factors that can lead to kind of ostracizing the out group or creating a a negative viewpoint of them but that isn't ne- that isn't inherent right that, that that is something that can happen but it doesn't have to happen is that is did i state that That's right. right
2: and i think it's a really Crucial thing to keep in mind about group dynamics is that in-group love is not inherently the same as out-group hate. Mm. And that most group intergroup context is actually an in-group love situation, but not an out-group hate situation. So I'm part of this group, I think we're pretty great. And <laughs> oh, you're part of a different group. Well, that's fine. Yeah. I don't like that as much, but it's fine. I don't dislike it. So even going back to those minimal group studies in the you know, that sort of original line of work. The way I described it was people got to allocate resources between their group and another group, and they would preference their own group. So they'd discriminate in their own group's favor. They did run versions, though, where instead of giving good things to the groups, you, you had to allocate punishments or negative outcomes, aversive things. And interestingly, when that was what you had to do, you didn't get in-group preference. Hmm. People treated both groups, typically speaking anyway, equally. So it wasn't one that they wanted to hurt the out-group. And when it involved causing harm, they didn't want to cause any more harm to the group. It's just that when it was about giving good things to the groups, they would give more to us than to them. And I think that's a really interesting finding. But as you're saying, it can tip the other way. So if you look at American political attitudes, for example, going back to 1980, if you s- surveyed people and asked, what do you think about your own political party? What do you think about the other political party? In 1980 in America, people reported positive feelings toward their own political party and neutral feelings toward the other side. So we're great, they're fine. Yeah, yeah. What's happened over the last, you know, since 1980, last 40 years is that attitudes toward one's own group have stayed the same. They're not more positive than they used to be. If anything, maybe slightly more negative. But what's really changed is attitudes toward the outgroups have plummeted. So that now people actively dislike the out-group. And since about 2012, those feelings of dislike for the outgroup on average are stronger than the average feelings of positivity toward the in-group politically. And I think you, you see this rhetorically when people talk about how they're voting. They're often not voting really for anybody, right? Like it's not that they're really in love with a particular candidate, mm-hmm. but they're very much voting against somebody. Yeah, so I, I'm yeah. voting because I don't want this person in office. And this yeah. is a kind of oppositional outgroup dislike driven politics.
0: Are there factors that you found that lead to that outgroup hate, as opposed to? So again, mm. as you said, 1980, it was that neutral. What what were the factors that then go in to lead to the the changing of that that identity of the outgroup and becoming from a neutral position to a hate position? Are there factors that lead to that that you found?
2: Yes. So, I mean, to get to hate, I think, which is a very extreme state. You need more than what I'm about to say, but um, one thing that starts to tip the balance from just being about in-group love with just neutrality toward our groups is competition. Mm. So in the in the original minimal group studies, they were very careful to create a situation where there's no inherent competition between the groups; they can all do well if if you want them to. But of course, in in real life contexts, there's often a competitive relationship because of some um, competition over a resource, or uh, or for status, or for uh, or for power influence. right? And in those situations when you're actually competing for something, it, it does tend to produce positivity toward the in-group and some negativity toward the out-group. But that's not, I think, the same thing as hate. Hate is mm. a, a much more extreme emotional state and associated with a desire to cause harm. Mm. Uh, so not just that I want us to win, right? So if you think, of going back to hockey fans, right? Like if, if your team is playing the rival team, People feel really good about their own team, and they feel some negativity, and they'll mock and insult and, and so on the, the other team. But they they don't hate the other team. They don't want those players on the team to suffer, like or, or or be killed, or you know. But hate is an emotional state that does produce that sort of desire, and I think to get there it takes an extra set of factors, and it, it really does take leadership—a uh, very nefarious form of leadership. But it takes leaders. And, and rhetoric, and, and denigration, and dehumanization, and a uh, sort of a set of steps that lead groups in a very dangerous
1: direction. I think it's fair to say that you're not a big fan of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, not a huge fan. Of that <laughs> that, uh, that that you and Jay are, are pretty explicit about about trying to push sort of a, a bigger we, you know, yes. than 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 right in in the in the book. And I I loved it. I love the story of Mary Robinson as a leader uh, Mm -hmm. bringing, you know, Ireland together with kind of connecting this big, we, uh, the astronauts, the story, the astronauts, uh, you know, seeing this big picture, we, and it, it, it reminded me of a friend of mine who says, um, who's a, who was Jewish. And he says, I never feel more Jewish than when I'm around a bunch of sort of Bible beating Christians, or Mm -hmm. I never feel more American than when I'm actually out of the country. Like I'm in Asia. Then I, then I tend to feel more of that. Is I guess what I'm wondering is if you have any kind of secret mm-hmm. serum that you could share with our, our <laughs> listeners, Is there what can we do to help create a bigger and more co- cohesive we? It's a
2: critically important <laughs> question. And unfortunately, we don't have a secret serum for it, except to say we think psychologically it's possible and you can sort of imagine how it, it can happen because in part by looking at examples of times, it has happened in specific contexts. So... Uh, I don't think we use this as an example in the book, that I remember anyway, is um, political dynamics in the United States after 9-11. Mm. So after 9-11, the attack on the country on that day, if you look, for example, at the president's approval rating, George W. Bush went from a pretty mediocre, I mean, not, not terrible, but nothing special kind of approval rating to the most popular president in American history, still today, for the entire time it's ever been measured. And that was true for both Republicans and Democrats. and. The reality is the attack on the nation sort of made the political divisions temporarily meaningless. Like it was national identity was everything. We are together and we came together in it, or Americans came together uh, in that moment. So (laughs) confronting some sort of common, in that case, threat or enemy can shift the identities. In this case, the way we would talk about it is it's. It's shifting people from subordinate identities, like your political affiliations, to a superordinate identity, some identity that contains both of them. So, you know, Republicans and Democrats are all, on some level, Americans. That's not salient a lot of the time, but circumstances can make it salient.
0: So, I think... Uh, sorry, carry on. Oh, I was just... Because uh, this is a really interesting piece for me, this idea of... Of, of that superseding piece and, and and what that takes and I would have assumed prior to 2020 that a global pandemic would have had a similar response to the 9 11 and yet we can see pretty clearly that it did not happen and so Dom just from your perspective you know it wh- why didn't that pull together. Uh, the nation like the 9-11 tragedy did.
2: Yeah, I think if you'd asked Jay or I, and many of our colleagues, right at the start of the pandemic, do, would we have expected some unity to come out of it? We would have said yes, yep. for the reasons you would have expected it. And I think the reasons why it didn't, especially in the United States, is a multifaceted thing, I think. Yeah. And I believe some people are doing some really interesting work on this, so that there, there may be a difference, for example, between sensing a threat or an enemy that's people, versus a virus. Mm. Right? A virus has no agency. It's not a conscious being. It's hard to hate. Right? I mean, it's just, it <laughs> yeah. is a threat, but it's a yeah. very different kind of threat than a human kind of thing. And then that maybe that, may that part of it. But I I think for us, it fundamentally comes back to uh, choices made by leaders that yeah. I personally believe it was an opportunity to build cohesion and unity and solidarity and in the United States, especially that opportunity was squandered. And I think it's a tragedy, actually. I think it's led to the deaths of, of huge numbers of people unnecessarily. And part of the reason we think that is that that didn't happen everywhere. Mm. It wasn't inevitable that it just broke down on political lines. Yeah. Not that there aren't politics in, in most places, but just looking across the board to Canada, for example, which is a politicized society and there's lots of polarization and lots of disagreement, but it didn't really politicize much about the pandemic. And if you looked at conservative rhetoric and and liberal rhetoric by leaders, they were pretty much saying the same things. They were more or less on the same page and spreading the same messages about, here's what we need to do protect ourselves, here's what we need to do, distancing, go get vaccinated, right? It didn't get turned into a political political issue. And for that reason, the national identity, I think it was a moment of unity for the country. Mm. In fact, we have um, a paper coming out very soon where, with about 250 co authors from all around the world, where we, we collected data from, I think it's 67 different countries. Wow. Um, and one of the things we found is that the strength of national identity in these different countries is associated with people taking more steps to protect themselves and, and, and these public health measures. That is, the more people identified with their nation, the more they were likely to do the right thing to prevent the spread of the pandemic it's in part because national leaders can use the national identity to rally people in solidarity. Yeah. And in places where they did that really effectively, we have seen better overall outcomes.
1: So I want to get back to this chicken and egg thing about, because you you speak about some research early in the pandemic about the differences in social distancing um, between the liberal and conservatives in the US. So leadership might have made a difference, but did it exist? Was that divide already there? or did leadership create it or was did the media create it do you have a feel for that
2: well i think by the time this, the pandemic began we were already in a deeply divided society <laughs> yes <laughs> so yeah. so in some ways that was a, con, a existing condition when we when we entered this particular challenge
1: but we didn't but as you said like it just sort of springs out of nowhere Right. With And it's not a person, it's a, this inanimate thing. Was it inevitable that we were going to be divided on it? That there would be divide? I think inevitably
2: there would have been some division. But I do think if the national leadership at the time had wanted to use it as an opportunity to try to gain some greater unity, not that it would have solved all the problems, but it right. was an opportunity to do that when there hadn't been many such opportunities for a while. In some ways, I think it did offer a new way to talk about issues, to, to bring some people on board who wouldn't have been on board with that administration at the time <laughs> otherwise. In part because people are scared and if somebody had stood up and said, we know what to do and it will be effective and let's all get together on this. I think that a lot of the country would have rallied to support at least that thing the administration was trying to do. Not everything the administration tried to do, but that thing they are trying to do. I really do think it was a missed opportunity but not, maybe not surprising that it ended up this way, given just how divided things already were, and that I think people, the leadership on both sides, sort of just did what they've been doing all along, which is we have a playbook which views the world very much through the lens of these divided identities, and um, they carried on with that as opposed to saying, oh, we could actually change the game here and play it slightly differently.
0: Which, again, you have a whole chapter on leadership and this uh, the the idea behind some of that is the stories that leaders tell Mm. are really impactful in how well they lead. And so, to your point, I think the stories that national leadership were going up from the old playbook, which was the in-group, and we are the in-group is the in-group, as opposed to broadening that in-group to, say, you know, we are America as opposed to this and we're in this together. It's us right. still against them. And and I don't know, maybe I'm overreaching at there, but it's still, I thought, really interesting in that conversation about leadership and the stories. How can leaders use stories to help build that social identity? And how important is that, do you think?
2: Yeah, we think it's really important that leadership is... I mean, leadership is a complicated thing and there's lots of elements to it, but a big part of it from our perspective is helping people figure out who they are in terms of these collective identities. That to lead is to help a group come to understand who are we, what challenges do we confront, where are we going, and what should we be doing? And you can think about battles for leadership in politics or in other domains as something of a contest of different stories about who we are right? so mm-hmm. the the story from leaders on the left is not the story or the same story of national identities from leaders on the right. They have different stories about the history of the country, where we have been, what have we done, what was good, what was bad about that, uh, and different stories about where we're headed. You know, what kind of nation, what kind of a people do we want to be into the future? And which story resonates with the most people will tend to be the story that um, becomes dominant and then comes to guide behavior. But I think, one of the interesting things in that chapter, just doing the research for it as we went along, was stories uh, about Lyndon Johnson, for example, as a president who sort of got stuck in a story. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. So le- leaders can, part of what they're doing is is telling stories to try and you know recruit followers and, and get people inspired to advance a particular vision. But in the telling of a story, you can also sort of become trapped by your own story. Mm-hmm. Um, in his case, he had a sort of narrative of what it meant to be a great president. And at least uh, some have argued that that sort of trapped him into escalating the Vietnam War when he really didn't want to, but he s- sort of was trapped in the story of that's what a great president would do. And in the case of the Trump administration early on in the pandemic, I think they got trapped or he got trapped by the story of who we are, which was a very oppositional story, right? It's like we, yeah. everything the Democrats do, we have to do the opposite. <laughs> and yeah. So if they're pro-vaccine, we have to be anti-vaccine. And there was an interesting event uh, a few months ago now, where he at a rally, I think it was in Alabama, told the crowd of his supporters, "You should go get vaccinated," and he got booed. Yeah, yeah. They would like do not like that. And and what I think that illustrates is again this idea that he's advanced a story of who we are, which his followers deeply embrace, and then that constrains him. He can't yeah. then deviate too far from that story because then they're like, oh, wait, are you actually a Democrat? No, no,
0: we, we're the anti-vax crowd. You can't you've tell told us, to us that if you disagree, you're the opposite and bad. And now you're saying something. That's right. So, yeah. so it's
2: a double-edged sword. You you can mobilize a group that way, but you're then potentially stuck with the story that you've, you've sold them on
1: yeah you talked about the underdog effect uh, in the book, mm. too, which I thought was was pretty cool. And I especially liked it because you brought up the idea of of being able to identify the band you know that right. really became great, like before they were great. And I wanted to ask you, did, <laughs> did you get to see a band, you know in the early mm. days before they became great? You know, before I was like, oh my God, you know, did you see so and so It's like, yeah, I saw them when they were you know at this bar down in the corner. All right, so Dom, I just have to inter- yeah. interlude
0: here, Tim. That is probably <laughs> the best transition to music <laughs> that conversation <was> nice. <laughs> that you have ever done in our two hundred and seventy plus episodes. So, Dom, you are the recipient of a a, a day here. That and there you go. So, <laughs> no, that's that's a great question. Yeah, see, <laughs> so a
2: band I saw, so. I, of certainly obscure Canadian bands <laughs> um, that then maybe became less obscure, but they're still probably obscure in America. So there's a band called Treble Charger, which I think actually did have a hit in America at one point in the late 90s or early 2000s. But I originally saw them in a tiny little club in Quebec City with like an audience of five and no one was paying any attention, but I thought they were pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, and they became, at least within Canada, a fairly big band at one point. And there was a, there is a thrill to that. You
1: got to do better than that. You got, there's got to be. I'll do,
2: well, okay. So the band I, in fact, my first like rock concert was Green Day. Okay. uh, On their Dookie tour. So they were just becoming big at that point. And there was a real sense of excitement about it. And I was 13 or 14, probably 14. And that, I was completely deaf for three days after the show and it was my first experience with a mosh pit and it was just awesome. Wow. And and they remain one of my favorite bands. The reason I was hesitant to use that is that they were on the rise at the time, although they weren't as big as they ultimately became. Yeah. But I, I think the, the broader point you're making is that there's a thrill to being sort of in on the secret, right? And one of mm. our favorite ideas that we we love and that we talk about in the book is this idea of optimal distinctiveness, that mm. as much as humans we have this need to belong and connect and fit in. We also kind of want to be unique and distinct and stand out. And there's different ways to achieve those things, but there are, you know, if you think about it, intention. The more yeah. you fit in, the less distinct you are. And so the idea, which comes from actually my postdoc mentor, uh, Dr. Marilyn Brewer, is that you're striving all the time for optimal distinctiveness. There's, there's a sweet spot somewhere. And one of the ways to find a sweet spot is to find a group that is cohesive, but different from other groups. And so, yeah, fans of obscure rock bands or goth teens or or whatever, they're all sort of in these deeply conformist groups, like outsiders look at them and say, they're all the same. To them, (laughs) it's deeply non-conformist because different from the rest of everyone else. Uh, And it's sort of, it's calibrating those two motives to the sort of perfect. Perfect combination.
0: We just did a month where we talked with a bunch of researchers on conspiracy theories and different pieces. And that what you just talked about is a key piece yeah. of what like Lee McIntyre and, and mm-hmm. those guys were talking about. It, it's this identity that they are having as part of this. It isn't, they said was look, you could the facts are are whatever you wanted to take and believe. The reason that most people are belonging is this identity that they have something personal about that, which is mm-hmm. I think to your point this this optimal, and I just drew a blank on what what
2: optimal distinctiveness. Optimal yeah.
0: distinctiveness, yeah. yes, is that you have a, you know I'm a flat earther. It's different, you know, and and but you yeah. know within that group we are really tight
1: cohesive. So. And they're different from the flat yeah. Earth society. <laughs> right. There's
0: there's two different flat Earth groups there. That that was one other thing we learned. That's right.
1: <laughs> and you see these schisms
2: occur all over the place, right? And um,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, for your own individual identity, if you were to be stranded on a desert island for a year, hmm. what three musical artists catalog would you take with you? Let's say two. Just make it make it a little easier. Let's say two. That's a really difficult question for me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> 'cause i lo- i actually love pretty much all genres of music. Great. Great. But I'm trying to think through you know, i think ultimately i and i, I think this would be true for many people. I would go back to that music of the early teen years, mm-hmm. you know, when when you just have this mm-hmm. you're really discovering music for the first time and i think it just stays with you you know for the rest of your life and um but which artists? Right. So the two that I loved the most at that age were Nirvana and Green Day. Okay. Which isn't the coolest thing to say because they were big name bands ultimately. But, but at the time, it didn't feel that way. Yeah.
0: To your point, I mean, Nirvana before, you know, they, they were that underdog. They were the kind of a whole yes. new genre that they were creating. The Seattle scene, yeah. that was
2: the whole identity yeah. of it, right? It was the grunge yeah. sort of we we were different from everyone else and we we're not those big hair rockers. Yes, exactly. The, we are the underdogs. Thank God. And then they come to Triumph. Yeah. Uh briefly. Yeah. And I I would say uh if I had to say a third, it would be a continuation of that which is Dave Grohl. Huh. uh who I think of a lot, not I I mean I really like him, but my son is a drummer. Oh. And he he deeply adores Dave Grohl, so he's doing a school project now on uh, on a hero, and so we've been researching Dave Grohl.
0: <laughs> he's an interesting, <laughs> very, very interesting. Band. He is so so. No Canadian bands in there. No uh, Tragically Hip. No, you know, any of those as you're as you're kind of going through here, huh? I'm trying to think Canadian band.
2: <laughs> I mean, I love I love Canadian bands.
1: That was a, a rather long pause there, just thinking about Canadian <laughs> yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you've lived in the United States too long. I probably have. I mean, th- one of the
2: things, so speaking of identity, which you may or may not know, is that in Canada, there's content laws, meaning yeah. that on both radio and television, you have to play or, or show a certain percentage of content that's Canadian. And those laws are driven by a threat to Canadian identity or sense threat to Canadian identity, which is the pure strength of American culture right that, that there was a sense in canada that we're losing who we are because just um, we're bombarded by american musicians and 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 then to some extent british music as well and so i think when i was that age i think 35% of all radio content had to be canadian artists which i think has a good and a bad side to it because on the one hand
1: you yeah,
2: it yeah. gives a real opportunity
1: to canadian musicians but some of it wasn't very good <laughs> 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 you know <laughs> Well, you know, the the other side or there one of the other sides of that is my son is a circus performer oh, wow. and he's lived in Canada for the last six or seven years. And he has benefited from Canadians' uh, drive to support a very, yes. uh, you know, Cirque du Soleil is a very Canadian-based uh, enterprise. Yeah. And so… The government is kind of said we want to make sure that this keeps going. That's right, you know, and and not not just Cirque du Soleil, but the the variety of of troops that have sort of been spawned from them. I think well. that's
2: right. I think it's a it's a great place to be an artist uh, of of different kinds. I think, and it's not accidental that, for example, a lot of comedians who ultimately become huge in America are, are Canadian, and it's in part that same dynamic. The Canadian comedy scene is actually quite small. It's it's very easy for people to get entry to it, to, to then get a lot of experience doing it. And I think it's easier to break into the Canadian scene than the American scene. Mm. Uh, but then once having broken in and got a lot of experience, they can come to America and actually do really well. Yeah. And then the province of Quebec in particular, in addition to that sort of Canadian identity protection, they've got their own <laughs> Quebec co thing going on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very much so. And so there's so. <laughs> a lot of promotion of and government support, actually, for... Um, Quebecois-based art, um, music, and theater. Yeah,
1: which he benefits from Yeah, living in Quebec City. Yeah. So, um, you know, all, all that wonder. I am just curious, though, with, with your love of music, do you are you able to listen to music while you work? I
2: used to be able to, like anything while I worked. But the older I get, the less true that is. <laughs> I often do have some music on, though, in the background, but it'll tend to be like classical or jazz or something just sort of, enjoyable, but I don't have to attend to it. Increasingly, the more, the older I get, the more, I don't know if I'm just getting worse at multitasking, but (laughs) I find that when I put music on, I want to listen to the music and and it's distracting. But back in the day, so I was a very bad saxophone player at one point in high school. I was in the jazz Ah. band uh, and it never really grabbed me. And I once admitted to the, the band instructor when he was giving me a hard time that I'd been practicing while also listening to the radio. <laughs> <laughs> you admit this to the, to the yeah, band leader, bad, to your teacher? <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I did ultimately get kicked out of it. <laughs> oh, I'm surprised it didn't happen right then.
2: <laughs> it should have. It should have. Like he'd been doing his job.
0: Dom, this has been absolutely fantastic. Wonderful insights. Fun conversation. So thank you. We, we really do appreciate your time and insights on this. Yeah. Well,
2: thanks for having me on. It's been great
0: welcome to our grooving session where tim and i groove on what we learned from our discussion with dominic have a free-flowing conversation and talk about whatever else comes into our socially identified brains
1: we are completely swept up in our social identity aren't we it's just so powerful we can't easily get beyond it, I think, you know, until we are intentional about it. Right. And and this is interesting because as, as we talked about at the beginning,
0: I have been greatly interested in self-identity, self-schemas for right. a number of years. have been doing right. a lot of reading on this. I won't say research, been doing a lot of reading on how social identities impact our behaviors and our mindsets and a variety of other things. And as part of that, I always knew I mean, it's in the literature for a long, long time about how the groups that we are a part of influence that social identity. What I think Dominic and Jay have done is brought that to the forefront and at least for me, made me realize that that is a much more powerful piece of who we are, who we see ourselves as than I had given uh, kind of merit to before this idea that the groups that we belong to this multiplicity of our social identities as Dominic yeah. said really impact us and they're really important to us as he said our group based identities are really important to us and that
1: yes i knew that but man they it, it's really pointed out and i think it's really important when he started ticking through citizenship race gender religion professional identity political identity this multiplicity, as you as you teed up, reminded me that if we're so damn complex, how is it that we can get hung up so severely on just one of these self-identities? Which is what? How is it? Yeah. And and we're going to choose one at any given moment that is going to dominate, or actually we aren't going to choose one, but we're going to be in one that's going to just dominate everything. It's
0: like, wow. And, and right now, I mean, I think the kind of message that is getting out there is this idea of oh, it's it's political and where there's the polarization right. in the country, at least in the United States, I think even throughout the world in this conservative liberal kind of bastion and particularly given the pandemic and how people are viewing things. But this idea that, wow, if you're on the other side, we have nothing in common. And what I think is hopeful in this conversation with Dominic and in, in the book is this idea that, no, we do have this multiplicity. So this idea that I can be a proud american i can be a proud minnesotan i can be a proud liberal i can be a rotarian i can be a father a, a, fa- a skier husband. Yeah. different you know these different groups and that the those can actually be the ones that become more salient when i'm talking with people and why aren't they more salient than this political divide which again is one aspect of our lives, but it shouldn't be the one that is so over-dominant that it it kind of drowns out every other one.
1: So When you go to a, a basketball game to see the Timberwolves play, your favorite team, our yes. hometown team, does it matter if the person next to you isn't the same gender or same political affiliation or the no. same corporate identity?
0: No, it doesn't. I mean, they're there to watch the Timberwolves or, or sometimes... Even sitting next to me, they sell the seats to to random people, and they it may be supporting the other team. It might be yeah. an L.A. Lakers fan or a or a Denver Nuggets fan or whatever you know dumb team that they want to support. But you know, <laughs> but but even then, and and that's the time where you go, oh well, then you're going to have this conflict and different things. But for ninety nine percent of the time, when those people are there we have really great conversations and we have really good, you know, ability to just enjoy the game of basketball because we can, again, maybe I I don't have my Timberwolves identity, Timberwolves fan identity on. I have my basketball NBA fan identity on and I can talk about what a great play that their star player did or they can tell me, oh, wow, that was really good. You guys are really coming up and coming. And we go, yeah, we can talk about the game And so you elevate that discussion up from what could be a contentious discussion into what can be a shared experience. And that is where I think some of this political element should go as well, this idea that can we raise up to the things that we find and have this shared identity in common, this idea that we have common beliefs and common identities that transcend these other smaller things.
1: I love it. I absolutely love the idea of trying to expand our view of who of our identity, to elevate it, to make it bigger and broader. To, you know, uh, it doesn't work for everybody's moral foundation. I know that that's really hard for some people. Yeah. But I think it's so great, and it also reminds me that self identity is fragile. That in the maple syrup study, this idea of just nudging people of being Canadian got them to prefer Canadian maple syrup over those who were not reminded of being Canadian which in, in the first place
0: which can be positive or negative from that perspective That's right. Right? That's right so again right. how do we prime those people around us i'm sure i could sit if the person next to me is wearing you know the big miami heat you know jersey and hat and everything and they're there. I could start off with, you know, saying something bad about Jimmy Butler, their star player who used to be on the Timberwolves and who I don't really like, and we could go and it could become contentious. or I could talk about, you know, isn't the game of basketball wonderful? It's just beautiful how how the athletic these people are and the skill set that they have, and it's great. And so again, you're right. setting up the identity. Is it contentious or is it is it shared? And that, Priming piece that, and the the maple syrup study, I think, really goes into showing how that can make a positive influence on on how we can you know leverage these identities
1: in ways that are going to be more beneficial for everybody. There was an exercise done on an Oprah Winfrey show in 1992 Ooh. by a teacher by the name of Jane Elliott. Now, there's a lot of there's a, a fair amount of contention about whether this is ethical to do with the kids or even with adults, because it's... Some background. So Jane Elliott is a,
0: a, she's a relatively famous school teacher who, after Martin Luther King Jr. was shot, uh, started to do this classroom. And it was in Iowa, if I'm remembering this right. I
1: think you're right. And she yeah.
0: separated out kids by blue eyes versus brown eyes, and basically then started treating one of those eye colors better and seeing them this kind of as a lesson for these kids about racism
1: and variety of different things. So keep going on with the story about Oprah. That's a great explanation. So she did this with, with a live audience in, I think it was 1992, and separated the blue eyed people from the brown eyed people and treated them very differently. Made sure that the people with brown eyes were treated very nicely. They got special treatment, really luxurious treatment. And the people with blue eyes were not treated so nicely. They had to stand while they were waiting for the show to start rather than than sitting. And then there weren't even enough chairs in the auditorium for them. So some of them had to sit on the floor and a variety of very small slights that ended up producing. Oh, and they had to wear green collars around their necks. So they were obviously identified. And the conversation, which I won't go into, is really fascinating and and i would urge everybody to to click on the link that we'll have in the show notes but blue eyes versus brown eyes is meaningless and her point is to remind us that it's as meaningless as the color of our skin Mm. that we don't need to minimize groups by such you know simple black and literally black and white kinds of uh of discussions and i i really love that oprah thing as a as a, both an example of our readiness to identify, right, our readiness to group, we're going to become part of this group very instantly. But at the same time, it calls attention to the fact that if it's so easy, we have to work hard to to fight it. Which I think leads right into this idea of minimal groups
0: that that Dominic talked about. This idea yeah. that we are, as you said, and as he says, he says we have this readiness people have to identify with collectives and this idea of just how quickly we can do this, the Kandisky group versus the Klee fan. Oh, right. right These made right. up differences. Right. And then we actually see behaviors changing because of this, this idea. And this goes back to some of the research that, you know, I've always referred back to where again, they worked with kids and they put kids in red t-shirts or blue t-shirts. And within yeah. minutes, within minutes when people, when the researchers went out and asked the kids in blue t-shirts to tell them about, you know what their blue t-shirt teammates were like. They were smarter, they were faster, they were more ethical, all these things. and then when they they're, asked my go, yeah, they're, they're my teammates, yeah, they're my people. teammates. they were all yeah. blue and the, the people wearing the red t-shirts while well, they, they they cheat and they're slower and all these other factors. And it's meaningless, right? It's blue t-shirts versus red t-shirts, and it was randomly assigned, and the kids knew this. And that was done with kids, but that's the same thing that happens with adults. It's the same thing that Jane did in separating out green eyes and blue eyes. And we fall into this trap really easily. And as you said, what is important is now what we need to do is we need to think about what can we do to make sure that these groups aren't unduly influencing us in ways that we aren't aware
1: of, or that we don't want to have them being influencing us. Yeah, how is it that the wearing a mask versus not wearing a mask, or being vaxxed or uh, being vaxxed or anti-vaxxed, have become salient parts of our identity? And again, this is this tide that I think we have to work against if we're going to really progress we have to do what you're saying. Let's elevate the discussion. It's not about the Timberwolves versus the heat. It's about our love of basketball. No. It's about our, our joy in watching these athletes compete. Let's dial down the destructive and divisive rhetoric and find the things that we actually can talk about, that we agree on. And and this idea, as Dominic said, that it's, there's a readiness to group. And so
0: let's find ways to group ourselves and to categorize our social world mm-hmm. in, in ways that bring us together and don't force us apart. And right. all right, we think about this, in a, oh, this is overwhelming and this big picture, but we don't have to think about it in this big picture. We can mm-hmm. think about it in our small groups that we interact with, our friends, our, our coworkers, our different pieces. If you're a leader within an organization, why is there the separation between marketing and sales? Why (sighs) do we kind of set these up as competing factors when we can be thinking about the larger whole? So those are really key because if you activate the salient group membership as being in marketing versus the active group membership being in sales, then you form these two groups that are in competition versus let's activate the identity of us as a company, um, of, of us as serving some population, of us as being these, you know, elements within an industry that we're trying to make positive impact on.
1: Those yeah. are the things that we can do. We have a client that is in the pharmaceutical business that has a code of conduct that brings their their customer, their end user first. Yes. And they publish their code of conduct in every conference room throughout the entire organization, across the entire world. And while it may not change every conversation, at least it primes us to to say the number one thing that we should be thinking about isn't our own little issues, our own sales versus marketing issues, but it is about the customer, the patient, the person who's going to be using the products further down the road. I think that that's an important important thing to remember. Yeah, and we think about this, all right? Kids join um,
0: teams, right? On the playground, after school, as part of you know, Little League, whatever it is. Adults join companies. They they join meetups and online communities. And so what can we do in those companies? What can we do with the meetups, et cetera? What can we do with, you know, people can have an identity that they're behavioral grooves listeners and this identity right. that, you know, this is who I am. How do we expand that? How do we make that so it's large? And so, oh, I'm a behavioral grooves listener, so I can't listen to... I don't know, human risk or some, you know, one of those you know, really bad <laughs> <Terrible>. podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, all those, sorry, sorry, Christian. I'm just using you as an example. We love you. We love you. You know, and, and do listen to Human human risk. It's a great podcast. Anyway, how do we, you know, bring that
1: up? Yeah. So how can we leverage this readiness to group to different groups, right, that are not going to be so divisive? I think that that's, that's really a damn good question.
0: All right. So, Tim, what are you leaving today's discussion? I mean, we, we could go on and on about this, and I don't think we necessarily have all the answers, but, you know,
1: what did you leave? What are you leaving today's discussion with? We have got, like, two great researchers building on a great body of work with some really clever insights. And for me, I think our discussion today is about the power the groups have over us. Like we said at the beginning, context matters. But we know so much more about why context matters, that certain context has certain identities, makes certain identities more salient. And that goes to influence our thoughts and our feelings and our actions, it's important. It's amazing to me how much our desire or need to
0: belong impacts how we think, how we behave. I've come to believe that this idea of a definitive, consistent, never-changing self-identity that shows up in any situation Ah, That's probably a fairy tale that it is really a multitude, the multiplicity of social identities that impact and that those those multiplicity is actually who we are.
1: Yet, yet we can influence which of our identities are our identities show up. Right. We can look to find those connections when we feel polarized. What what are the groups that we can connect with? We can look to understand how context influences us and then adjust how we view them. So I would urge us to look for broader contexts rather than narrower ones whenever possible. Yeah, that's hopeful, Tim. And with that, we encourage you, our listeners, to start thinking about what groups
0: you identify with and how those groups are influencing you. Take some time this week to explore that idea, and then, Make adjustments that you think will be beneficial
1: to your life. One of those adjustments just might be to tell your in-group friends about behavioral grooves. <laughs> Heck, you can tell your out-group enemies about <laughs> behavioral grooves. It
0: might lead to some common ground, which then can bridge those differences.
1: So very true. Okay, so once you go out and tell your friends and neighbors and everybody about behavioral grooves, maybe you could even just start by sharing this in a social media post. Um, you could follow us on social media. Maybe reply to one of our links, or LinkedIn messages. We would really appreciate it if you could help get the word out.
0: Yeah, and leave a rating for us or a comment on Apple Podcasts or whichever pod service that you use. And so with that,
1: we hope that this week you go out and find your groove.